0: Well, good morning, and it is a distinct joy and privilege for Becky and for me to be with you. We love the local church. That I'm just unashamed to say that. That's our heart after having grown up in the church. For me, a part of a, a, of a little Norwegian evangelical free church about 60 miles from Canada in the state of Minnesota, where I heard these godly men and women who had immigrated from Norway cry out to God, in broken English, and I received in that moment as a youngster growing up, a heart for the church and a heart for the Lord Jesus. Someone asked me, how did you ever learn how to pray? I said, it wasn't books I read, and there's great books on prayer. I learned how to pray by being with people who know Jesus. And they prayed. And I saw God answer prayer, and I saw out of that my home church during those years when we grew up, the opportunity to be invested in. You know, we, we didn't call it disciple-making back in those days. We probably should have. It, it, was, it was really biblical, spiritual investment in people's lives. And it was out of that investment that we saw God raise up leaders for His church. Many of whom, in fact, it's, it's really strange, out of this little church in the middle of nowhere in Minnesota, during the years that I was in high school, Five of us served as pastors, four missionaries, two mission agencies, one in Asia, one in Europe, were started. And a professor at Denver Seminary, and now crazy enough, the president of the free church, all out of a little church in a little town because God worked. And the people of God cared and continued to invest. And so when I hear the history of this church, and I see those wonderful old books in the back in Swedish, And I think we remember those who came before, and we also look to the future. The words of the song that was played during the offertory, May all who come behind us find us faithful. And that's really my heart for you. We can look back, and we can see all the incredible things that God has done over 125 years, and we praise Him for that, and we celebrate where the church is today. But we look forward with eyes of faith saying God is not finished with Lance Free Church, right? God has things He wants to do here in you and through you in this community and literally around the world. And so, as I said last night, just congratulations to you from EFCA churches and leaders across the country and our more than 625 missionaries in almost 50 nations around the world to be able to for me to be here and for Becky to be here with me. It's just an incredible honor. So thanks for your warm welcome, and I'm thrilled to be able to open the Scriptures to you today and to be able to get a little bit of a sense of what God is saying to us from His Word. Because when I think about the things that God is saying to us, ultimately, it really comes down to how those things apply to our lives. So let me start with this. Now, I'm not sure about you, but it's the way my my life works, okay? My life is that I like to plan. I get up in the morning, I have kind of a plan for the day. In fact, I tease people that if it's not in Outlook in my computer, it may not exist because I like to plan my day. But if you're like me, maybe you also have this situation where there are some days that just don't turn out like you'd planned, right? You have some days like that? I mean, I I have them. They happen every once in a while where I'm going, man, I I really thought that this was going to work and it didn't. I'll give you an illustration. Sadly, about uh, in fact it was February of last year, early February, Jeff Sorvik, who was the director of National Church planting for the Free Church, tragically died in a house fire. And it was just, it was so hard. And and we began then to ask the question: so, what do we do as we think even about the whole idea of church planting in the free church? And so we began to look for God, what are you gonna do and how are you gonna continue to raise up leaders? And one of, my, one of my key leaders from the national office and I were meeting on May 24th with a young man who has pastors. He's planted a local church. He pastors that church. He's led church planning in one of our districts on the West Coast. And he said, I will help you move the whole team forward in church planning. And so my, my colleague Brian and I had spent the whole day with him. And he lives just about an hour north of where Becky and my home is in San Jose, California. And so I thought, wow, I get to drive there. I don't have to fly to this meeting. This is really wonderful. I drove up. I met with him. And on the way back, it was one of those horrific commute days. I sat in what should have taken me about 50 minutes. I was two hours into traffic. And I thought, I know a shortcut. I can just pull off the freeway here and I can take some back roads and I can get home in half the time. And so I I, I was so thrilled. We'd had such a wonderful meeting, plans for the future, prayed together. We just sensed God's hand on us. I got off the freeway. I pulled onto a side street. I started going this down the side street. All of a sudden, all I saw was a blur of green in front of me and someone ran a stoplight in front of me. I didn't even have time to hit the brakes. All I heard was, crunch and glass and the next thing i knew my car is skidding to a stop on the sidewalk the airbag having deployed you ever had an airbag deployed it's like a horse kicked you in the chest okay the airbag deployed i'm I'm first of all thinking what happened and then secondly I, i wonder are all my pieces still here you know do i still have all my parts And I couldn't see much, and I thought, oh, no, what's the problem? And then I realized the airbag had blown my glasses off on the floor. So I'm digging for my glasses. I found my glasses. I I literally had to kick the door of the car open. I kicked the door open. I'm standing outside trying to find the other driver, hoping that he's okay. And I see him walking around his car, and I thought, well, hallelujah, he's fine. And then you know what the next thought was in my mind? I didn't need this today. I just, I did not need this today. I, 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 number one, I didn't need a car total. Number two, I didn't need a trip to the urgent care. Number three, I didn't need the huge burns I had on my, on my thumb from the hot gases from the airbag, nor did I need the bruises in my chest. I didn't need any of this. It was not what I wanted my day to be. You had some days like that. Take your Bible. I want you to turn with me to John chapter 13. Because in John chapter 13, we find the disciples and it's one of those days for them. Because in, in John 13, it, it's, this is that wonderful account of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. But what we need to have as, the, as just the underlying foundation for that is to realize this really was the high point of the year for them. They were going to be celebrating Passover with their master. It was their opportunity in the upper room with jesus to celebrate passover they'd been looking forward to it for an extended period of time now if you read one of the other gospel accounts of this of this particular passage you would see what john doesn't describe to us is that on their way to the upper room they were doing what i like to say was one of their favorite pastimes they were arguing with each other which one of them was the greatest. Okay, so they're in this argument of which one of them is the greatest. They get to this upper room that had been prepared for them. They go up an outside staircase, open the door, get into the upper room, and they look in the room, and there is something, no, should I say someone, that is clearly absent. You see in the corner is a basin and a pitcher of water and a towel, and there is not a servant to be found. And so we find in John chapter 13, verse 1, this. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. And during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray Him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands and that He had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Let me stop there for a moment. You see, can you imagine the tension in the room? Okay? They, they come into this room. The towel, the basin, and the, and the pitcher of water are there. No servant. Now I'd be willing to guess that if you asked those disciples to a man if they'd be willing to wash Jesus' feet, they'd all go, "Sure, I'll wash the master's feet, but I'm not washing your feet. There's no way I'm going to do that." They'd have obviously been arguing which one of them was the greatest, so there's this awkwardness in the room. Something is socially inappropriate. But Jesus is there and he bids them to recline at the table. Now, let let me give you a picture of what this looks like because you may have in your mind this beautiful painting of the Last Supper. You know, when when I looked at that great old classic painting of the Last Supper and then I would read this passage, I would think to myself, that is really weird. If Jesus is washing their feet, he's like crawling under the table to do that. That would be very strange. But what you need to understand is it wasn't a table like that. It was a table that literally is about 18 inches off the floor. And it was in in a U-shape so that the people that would be eating at the table were on the outside of the U, and the servants could come in the center of the U to put food around. They didn't sit in chairs. They reclined on mats. They They were mats on the floor, and they would lay on their left side, reclining on their left elbow, and then reach up and take the food. So as they're reclined at this table, Jesus... I love the text. It says, knowing the Father had put all things into His hands, that He he had come from the Father, He was going back to the Father, He knew who He was, He knew what His mission was, He got up and it says, and He now showed them the full extent of His love. And I think it's not just washing their feet, it's all the way to the cross. He gets up and He does something no self-respecting rabbi would ever do. He stripped down in in front of His followers. He took off His outer garment." Just left his undergarments. He took out his outer garment, laid it down, took the towel and wrapped it around his waist, poured water into the basin and went around and began to wash their feet. And if you can just imagine the awkwardness in that room. They, they, were, they were awkward. It was awkward because of the tension between them. And honestly, friends, it was awkward because they were embarrassed for Jesus. Well, why would the master do this? I mean, no, no rabbi would do this. Why, why would he do this? And, and the text tells us he gets to Peter. And you can read it in the text. It says, Peter says, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus says this, if I don't wash your feet, you don't have anything to do with me. And I love Peter's response. Well, then, Lord, not just my feet, my head and my hands. In other words, give me a whole bath. I mean, I'm all in. I'm all in with you. I, I, there are times I wish I had at least a still shot, if not a video clip of Jesus? Wouldn't this be one of those times? Wouldn't you like to see his face? Couldn't you see him kind of looking at Peter going, here you go again, Peter. Okay. I mean, you're okay. Let me wash your feet. And so Jesus continues to go around this table and he's washing all the disciples' feet. When he's done, he takes the basin and towel, puts it, in, puts it back in the corner, puts his outer garment on, and he goes and he sits down and excuse me, he reclines again at that table. Now come back to the text in verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to also wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, A servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I've chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. And I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me, Receives the one who sent me. Now he starts teaching them. And in the midst of the supper, he says, you saw what I just did to you. I want you to do that for one another. Now, awkward again. I mean, they're just arguing about which one of them is the greatest. They refuse to do it. Jesus said, you've seen me do this. I want you to do it. This day is not getting any better for the disciples. It's not getting any better at all. It even gets worse. Look with me at verse 23. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. And one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining a table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple leaned back against Jesus and said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. And so when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. And now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. They argued about who was the greatest. Jesus embarrasses himself in their mind, strips his outer garment, washes their feet Now you do the same, he tells to them. And then he says, oh, by the way, one of you will betray me. It is getting worse. And around that table, remember I said it's sort of a U-shaped table? Around that table, John, who is the author of this gospel, was on what would have been the side, his back was to Jesus. Judas was on the other side the place of honor. So Peter, on the other side of that table, around the other side of the table, he gets John's attention. He says, ask him who it is. And if you read the text, it would seem kind of strange if they were sitting in regular chairs that John did this, but it says that he just he just reclined back against Jesus. In other words, he rolled backwards like this. He put his head on Jesus' chest and he simply said, Lord, who is it? So they could whisper back and forth to each other. Jesus said, it's the one I'm going to dip, the, who I give the bread after I... Dip this morsel in the bowl. And he dips it in and he gives it to Judas. And then strangely he says, what you're going to do, do quickly. He gets up, walks out. I love the picture from the light in that room. He walks out. He'd been filled with the devil. And he walked out and it said it was nights into the darkness of disobedience. And they're clueless as to why. They argue about who's greatest. Jesus washes their feet. You do the same. One of you is going to betray me. Judas gets up and leaves. It gets worse. He continues to go on. Then in verse 31, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, let a little while I'm with you, you will seek me. As I said, To the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. Now now put yourself in their place. They had given up everything to follow him. They'd left family and job and career and future. They'd given it all up to follow him. And now he not only says, one of you is going to betray me. He says, by the way, I'm leaving and you can't come along with me. And then he says to them something. Parents, you've said this to your children. Uh, You probably have. He said to them, what Becky and I used to say to our children, we have four of them, when they were old enough that they could stay by themselves and we would run to the grocery store or something, what we would say is, now we're going to be gone. Be good to each other. Don't fight when we're gone. And he says to them, I'm leaving. A new command I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, so also you are to love one another. And by this all, people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And then Simon Peter Simon says, Lord, where are you going? Jesus said, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. And Jesus says, and wouldn't you like to have his facial expression? Oh, Peter, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, The rooster will not crow until you've denied me three times. Friends, the disciples had a plan for that day. It was Passover with the Master. It was the high point of their year. They'd all look forward to it. And then they get in this ridiculous argument on the way there. And Jesus washes their feet and tells them to do the same. And then he talks about this denial And Judas gets up and leaves. And he says, by the way, I'm leaving and you can't come along with me. And oh, Peter, you'll really die for me. Before morning, you'll deny me three times. It wasn't their best day. You know, as a little boy growing up in the church, I memorized John 14 verse 1. We had a little club program, and this was pre-Iwana days. I had a little club program, It it was called Jet Cadets. And we used to memorize Scripture, and I memorized John 14, verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. You know, I memorized that verse and I never fully understood how troubled the disciples were. I just look at John 14, 1 and I'd go, oh, let not your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. I love the King James, many mansions. If it were not so, what I have told you, I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again so that you can be there with me. Some days don't turn out like we planned. But the truth is, my friends, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is his answer for troubled hearts. So when everything came crashing down on them, he says in John 1, John 14, verse 1 let not your hearts be troubled. And I love verse 4 if you come there in the text. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas is one of my favorite biblical characters for a variety of reasons one is that he's a real straightforward guy the other is that he's a twin and 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 why that's important is Becky and I have twin sons and one of our twin sons has twin sons and my sister has twin sons and there's like twins everywhere in my family so it's just like a part of who we are and I love Thomas but but I love Thomas's question Lord and men you'll understand this Lord we have no clue where you're going So how can we know the way? And if you've been in the church for any length of time, you know the next verse. Jesus says in verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Because friends, the gospel is Jesus' answer for troubled hearts. 1999. It was a Friday, the second Friday in June, first day of summer vacation for our family. We were—I was wrapping up. It was my day off, preparing a few things. I was going to preach on Sunday, and we were going to Disneyland for vacation. Our kids hadn't been to Disneyland. They were so excited. We we're going to drive from San Jose the 300 and some miles down to LA. We we're going to go to Disneyland. And at 11:15 in the morning, our phone rang. I can tell you where I was standing. I was standing in our bedroom. It was in the days of old cord phones, you know I didn't It wasn't my cell. She called my home phone, and I picked up the phone, and the first words out of my doctor's mouth was, "Are you sitting down?" Now, I'm not real bright, but I do have to tell you, friends,'t you it's not a good sign if your doctor asks you if you're sitting down. It's just not. I said, "Yes, I'm sitting down." And she said, uh, the radiologist's report has come back. And that lump on Brad's leg just below his knee, it's osteosarcoma. It's one of the most deadly forms of childhood bone cancer I I want you to bring him to my office immediately because we have to get him on crutches. I don't want him walking on that leg. And my my mind is going racing 100 miles an hour. The first thing I thought of was the kid is an all-star Little League baseball player. It's the end of his season. He's played every game, every position, and he's mostly a catcher. And now you're telling me you don't want him walking on this leg. Hardest thing I've ever done in my life, friends. Bar none is to look my 12-year-old boy in the eyes and tell him he has cancer. Eyes were this big. His first words out of his mouth, Dad, am I going to die? He said, son, I don't know. All I know is we're going to get people praying all over the world for you, and we're going to get you the very best medical care we can because that is what you need. I said, we're going to get the very best help we can. Over the next 15 months, 22 rounds of chemotherapy, 26 hospitalizations, three major surgeries. They amputated his leg at the knee. Only five other children at the Children's Hospital of Stanford University were treated for that form of cancer during the year plus we were there. Three of the five had reoccurrences and died in six months after the end of their chemo treatments. I came face to face with the fact that my dream for my little boy was gone. And there were days that I found myself on my knees as they were he and his twin brother were sleeping in their bedroom, on my knees in front of their bedroom door crying out to God. And friends, do you know what sustained me? You know what sustained Becky during those days? It wasn't the long, big theological words that I could understand from my time in seminary. It was what I learned in Sunday school. It was the gospel of Jesus Christ that my God is great and gracious and that He loves me and that He has a plan for me and for my boy. And that I could trust Him in the midst of everything. And that even in my brokenness, I could confess my sin and, my, and, and, and just my heart before Him and know that there was forgiveness in Jesus Christ and there was hope not just for this life, but for the future. That is what sustained us. For you see, we in the free church have been a gospel people from the beginning. Those Swedish immigrants that came to the U.S. that started this church, they came with a dream in their head and the gospel in their hearts. And where they went, they started churches and they wanted to make sure that other people heard this good news that God loved a broken people and broken world so much He sent His own Son to live a sinless life, to die a death He didn't deserve to pay a price we should have paid to be buried and resurrected and ascended to the Father who will come again in glory And they wanted to make sure everyone in their community knew. That's us. Th- that's the free church. We're, we're based on the truth of the inerrant word of God and centered on the gospel with our eyes on the very mission of God in the world. I'm the way, the truth, and the life Jesus said. No one comes to the Father except And friends, there may well be people around you. You may be one of those today. You may be one of those who is here, broken in heart, broken in spirits. Maybe it's a health issue for you or a relationship issue in a family or marriage. It's a job question for you. It's just a sense of nagging uncertainty in your hearts. I want to tell you the gospel of Jesus Christ is His answer for your troubled heart. When Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened and I'll give you rest, that's you. And it's those people around you. It's the mission he has for you in the world. But he hasn't left us alone. I I, I love this. This passage goes on. And if I had time today, we'd unpack the whole upper room discourse of Jesus. But we don't. I want to share just a second idea with you because He has not left us alone. Remember, Jesus said, I'm leaving, He told His disciples, and you can't come along with Me. And if you come with Me to John chapter 14, verse 15, you will see that the Holy Spirit is Jesus' gift to empower us to live gospel-centered lives. If you love Me, you'll keep My commands, Jesus said. And I will ask the Father, and He'll give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, and the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells in you, and He will be with you, and He will be in you. And I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. I won't leave you as an orphan, I'm not going to leave you alone. In fact, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, not simply to be with you, but He'll be in you. And you could go on, you could read the rest of this passage in the Upper Room Discourse. The Holy Spirit is our teacher. The Holy Spirit is the one that empowers us. The Holy Spirit is the one that brings peace to our souls. It's His gift. If the gospel is Jesus' answer to troubled hearts, then the Holy Spirit is His gift that allows us to live lives that are centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. I wish I could tell you all the things God did and taught our family during those months and the succeeding years following our son Brad's cancer journey. I need to do what I often forget when I tell his story. I need to tell you, he survived. He's alive. He's married. He works for a high-tech company called Cisco Systems. I told you we have twin grandsons. They're his. He and his wife have three children. They weren't supposed to have any. God, God is an incredible blesser of people, right? But what sustained us during that time was Hanging onto to the gospel like we're in the midst of a hurricane. And it's Jesus we hung on to. And it's the Holy Spirit that walked that through with us every step of the way. And it can happen with you. It's that empowerment of the Holy Spirit, as Jesus said, I won't leave you as an orphan. I won't leave you alone. I will come to you. And you read about that in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit descended upon the church. He said, I'll come to you. And I'll be with you. And in you. Through my spirit. A good friend of mine who pastors an EFCA church in suburban Minneapolis told me this story. I thought it was just an incredible one to share with you. Um, his name is Randy, and, and Randy and his church had really been focused on the, the area of evangelism. They really wanted to raise, the, he called it the evangelism uh, temperature in their church. And so they were talking a lot about sharing the gospel with people and about listening to the min- promptings of the Holy Spirit in their lives. When the Spirit of God would prompt you to share, you share. And so they've been talking a lot about this at the church and on this one particular week a man in his congregation who'd been a part of all those messages and hearing the talks and things, he's an attorney and and his name was Joe and Joe Fields and Joe got a phone call from somebody in the community saying, I hear you're an attorney, you do estate planning for people, and uh, that you do house calls. My my father's in the hospital, very sick, and and he's on hospice in a hospital. Would you come and visit him? He needs to get all of his last uh, last things in, in place. And so Joe did. He went up, he met with a family, all their children were there and they went through all the legal things, signed all the documents, got everything he needed put together. And at the end of his, of his visit in the hospital, he got up and, and, and he looked at this man lying there who was on hospice and he said, he shook his hand to say goodbye and he said, and I'll pray for your health. And, and then he turned and started to walk out the door and he said, it was like the Holy Spirit just grabbed him by the front of the shirt and said, uh, just to his heart, so you're going to pray for his health. The man's on hospice. He's dying. Do you know whether he knows me? And Joe's thinking, well, I have no clue. So he took a deep breath, my friends, and he turned around and he went and he sat back down in the chair beside this man and he said, I know you're real sick and I know you're on hospice. I'm a follower of Jesus and I have the hope of eternal life. I'm just wondering, do you? And the man looked at him and said, with fear in his eyes, no, I don't. Joe said, could I Could I just lead you in a prayer where you could give your heart to Jesus? And he shared a bit about the gospel message. And he led this man in a prayer and said, amen. And he said, I literally almost floated to my car. I couldn't believe it. And then he said, I got a call about three days later from one of the children of this man. In fact, it was a daughter. And this daughter said, Mr. Fields, I want to talk to you because I understand you're the attorney that went to see my father and he thought, oh my goodness, now what did I do wrong? Right? So, he went, you're the attorney that went to see my father and and, and, and he said, yes I am. And and she said, um, I just want to thank you. You see, she said, I'm a, I'm a follower of Jesus and I've been talking to my dad for years about needing to give his life to Christ. And, and he wasn't interested. And so I started to pray that God would bring somebody into his life who could share the gospel. And he said, and she said, and so I, I stood up on a Sunday, much like you had the prayer time here this morning in in, in a church, she said, I stood up on a Sunday morning when they asked for a prayer requests, and I said, Would you join me to pray that someone would go and would come and share the gospel with my father? He's in the hospital dying. And she said it was you and you're an attorney, and you shared the gospel with him. And he just laughed. He said, said, "Let let me ask you, where do you go to church? She said, I go to Malacca Evangelical Free Church. It's an EFCA church about 35 minutes up the road. And because the Holy Spirit was empowering this man who was doing his job but was out with someone with a need, the Spirit prompted his heart. He shared the gospel. The Spirit prompted this man's daughter's heart to share with her church. And she did. And people prayed and she shared. And this man came to faith in Christ. And two days after he came to faith in Christ, he was in the presence of his Savior. Friends, that's why you're here. That's why God brought you into this community. You see, what brings transformation in people's lives is truth that's applied in the context of relationships. That's what the church is. It's the Word of God and the teaching and empowerment of the Spirit of God and redemptive relationships within the people of God that shape and transform us. And he longs for Lance Free Church to continue to be that transforming, shaping work of the power of God through his word and his spirit and his people. Because honestly, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know the world around us is a mess. But I am just here to tell you, the gospel is the best thing we have to give a broken world. You may have had conversations with people around you over the course of the last seven days about what happened in Las Vegas Sunday night a week ago today. I've talked to people who their children are afraid. They're afraid to go out into public wondering what is going to happen. It is like our world has come unglued. And Can I just share with you? There is no one that has the answer except the people of God. Because the gospel is Jesus' answer for troubled hearts, and His Holy Spirit is His gift to empower us to live gospel-centered lives so that we can take this message of the gospel and give it away. Matt mentioned that I, I was involved with uh, the Africa division of Reach Global for almost a decade. And Palm Sunday five years ago, I'm driving in Ghana. This is between Accra into this, toward the Togo border. If you, if you ever heard about voodoo, I was driving right into the bullseye where voodoo started, okay? To go to a church plant on a Sunday. I was gonna preach at a church plant. Most amazing, ch- I could tell a whole story about that church plant, but I won't. I'm on my way there and my phone rings. I always carried a phone with an Africa SIM card in it. My phone rings and it's my friend, Dr. Nuponga, who is the president of a French-speaking seminary in Central African Republic. And Nuponga says to me, Kevin, Kevin, you need to pray for pray for us, pray for us right now. We're in deep trouble. I said, Nuponga, what's the problem? And then I heard it. I could hear machine gun fire in the background. I heard mortars exploding behind him. He said, We're in the midst of a of a of a revolutionary coup, a military coup in our country and 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 people are flooding onto the compound of the seminary and it was almost all muslim folks they're flooding into the compound because he said this this is where they they believe it's safe and they're flooding in you need to pray for us we're not sure what we're going to do we don't know exactly what's going to happen we don't know how this military coup is going to end and i said nupanga are you okay he said, and you need to understand, he's an Old Testament scholar. He's written, he has a PhD in Old Testament. He's written commentaries. He's a bright, bright man. His favorite scriptures are sent Chronicles, Ezra Nehemiah. And he said this. He said, it's like the king in the Chronicles said, Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And as soon as he said that, his cell phone went dead. Now, you know what I'm thinking? He just got blown up. I mean, my, my friend is gone. So, so I got on the phone. I called him back. Call him back. Call him back. Nothing. I mean, I couldn't just couldn't get through. Couldn't get through. Couldn't get through. Prayed like crazy that whole day. Got people around the world praying. Finally, the next morning, I thought I'm going to try one more time. So I called his cell phone, and he picked up. And I said, "Nupanga, you're okay." He said, "Yeah, I'm fine." I said, "What happened with your phone?" He said, "My battery died." And I said, you're killing me here. I mean, I I thought you were dead. I have prayed like crazy for you. And then I asked him, what's happening? And he said, there are thousands of unbelieving people that are living right now on our our seminary campus. And I said, what are you going to do? He said, it's an incredible opportunity to share the gospel with them. And I'm thinking, the Gospel is Jesus' answer to troubled hearts. And the Holy Spirit is His gift to empower us to live Gospel-centered lives. And as my friend Nuponga said so clearly, the Gospel is what we have to give a broken world. May that be the legacy of Lance Free Church. That if God gives you another 75 Or 125 years? Jeff and I won't be back to celebrate that with you. But there would be others here who would. And in another 75 or 125 years, may people look back and say, it has been a church that is faithful to the Word of God and the Gospel of Jesus Christ is the center and the mission of God to be great commandment, great commission, disciple-making Christians has been what has driven this congregation for, lo, these 200 or 250 years. So to God be the glory, my friends. Great things He has done, and dare I say, great things He will do. Because it is the gospel of Jesus Christ that we carry into this sin-stained and broken world.